if, uh, if you have your Bible, you want to follow along, as you see, we'll be in uh, the last part of uh, Acts chapter 5. That's where we'll be uh, following along. It's been a really interesting journey through the book of Acts so far. And it's amazing that every time I read this text, uh, every time I preach this text or teach from this text of Acts, I, I learn something different. I see something different. And I think the Word of God has that effect, right? Uh, you know, you're, a, you're at a different place in your life. You have a different understanding. A lot of times circumstances have happened that cause you to maybe have new insight or see things in a different way. And it, uh, it's just amazing at when you look at something again that you, you see different things. And it's that, that's been my experience over and over again as I've, as I've looked at this text. And it's been just really incredible watching the, this movement called the church come together. And as we've seen the, uh, the, the work of the Holy Spirit and the trust of the Holy Spirit on behalf of the apostles, as they've allowed the Spirit to lean and, and to, to lead and guide them. It's a complete different scenario than what we saw from the apostles and the disciples before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Before, it was like they don't know what they're doing, and now it seems like they know exactly what they're doing. And I think that's because of the promised Holy Spirit that Jesus said was going to come and dwell inside of them. And so we've seen the Spirit give them great courage as they stood up and they proclaimed in Jerusalem the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Proclaimed that message to a hostile crowd. A crowd of people that, that at one time were there chanting, crucify Him. And out of that crowd, we have seen thousands come to faith in Jesus. Come to believe that, that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's what, what birthed the church. Now then, over the last few weeks, we've seen just a little bit of, of opposition where these guys have been brought in before the Sanhedrin, which is the, the ruling body, the religious leaders. It's made up of... of the, the Sadducees, which is the, the bigger sect, the more uh, liberal sect, the, the, the group that is more closely tied to Rome, but let's do a little quiz here. The Sadducees don't believe in what? The, the resurrection, right? They don't believe in the resurrection. And, say it with me, that's just so sad, you see. Well, that joke never gets old. That preacher joke's got legs. I love that one. And then the other part of the Sanhedrin are the, the Pharisees. And that's a smaller group, but they are much more respected by the people. And because of that, they have a little more pull. They have a little more power. So now then, this group has been brought in. They've been told not to preach. Don't do that. And then what happens? They just go and they, they do it anyway. And so we see this happening. I told you last week, that the persecution was going to begin in earnest as we got to this part of the story. 
And that's exactly what we see happening. These guys have been taken in. They have been told by the, the highest rule of the land, do not preach or teach or speak out in the name of Jesus. And what do these guys do? You got it. No, they've done it anyway. They've continued to preach the name of Jesus. You know, civil disobedience has a storied past and present in, in our country. Perhaps the most, those most prominent is the American Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s, led by Martin Luther King Jr. and others who approached, uh, opposed racism and Jim Crow laws that allowed state and, and local governments to enforce racial segregation. Just this past summer, we saw some stuff go on in our community. When there was the, the shooting, the officer-involved shooting of, of Herbert Gilbert, and we saw people take to the streets in, in protest, pushing back against what they perceived to be an injustice, and it was peacefully done, and it was really a, a beautiful thing to, to watch it happen. Now, a question that I want us to honestly ask ourselves this morning is this. Is there a time when civil disobedience is a good thing? And I'll go ahead and tip my hand to you now and say, yes, I think it is. And I think there are times when it is appropriate. And I think what we see from Acts chapter 5 shows us when it is appropriate and how to, how to go about it. So let's begin reading this, this text together. As we read, I'll pause and, I, and I'll make some comments. Let's, uh, let's start in verse 17. Then the high priest rose up, he and all who, with him, he and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. Now we want to know why. Why are they filled with jealousy? And why was their jealousy so much so that Luke tells us that they rise up? That they are going to stand up in opposition as well to what's going on? Well, if you look at that paragraph right above, it kind of tells you why they were jealous. Because the apostles are there at Solomon's colonnade or Solomon's porch. They're at the temple. They're preaching. They're teaching. The people are adding to, or the Lord is adding to their numbers every single day, both multitudes, both men and women. They would carry their sick out in the streets, just lay them there, and as Peter passed by them, they had so much faith that God would heal them, that Jesus was alive and reigning from on high, that they had enough faith that if they just laid them out and Peter's shadow crossed over them, they believed they'd be healed. And you have this happening. And it says in verse 16, in addition, multitudes came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they all were healed. The Sadducees, who are the guys who really have a lot of power, don't like this. Okay? They don't like what is happening, that these people are gathering at the temple. 
and preaching Jesus, which they've already been told not to do this. Don't preach Jesus. Definitely don't do it here at the temple because this was the, a direct challenge to their authority. And to do this at the temple is about the most holy spot on the face of the planet at this point in time. And yet here they are. And so it is a direct affront to the Sadducees, to the Pharisees, who are there proclaiming resurrection from the dead. That's what gets the Sadducees upset, but proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what gets the Pharisees upset. Okay, And so they're enraged by this, and so they, they rise up with this, with this jealousy. Verse 18, So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out, and said, Go stand where? In the temple. Right where they just got arrested from. Go stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. The life is this life in Jesus. The life is what we just got through talking about as we gathered around our tables. The importance of the death and the burial and the resurrection and what that means for us individually and what that means for us as a church, as a Christ-centered community. Go tell them about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. When the high priest and those who were with him arrived, they convened the Sanhedrin, the full council of Israelites, and sent orders to the jail to have them brought. But when the temple police got there, they did not find them in the jail, so they returned and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing in front of the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. As the captain of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about them and wondered what would come of this. Someone came and reported to them, look, the men you put in jail are standing where? In the temple. And what are they doing? Teaching. And in whose name are they teaching in? In the name of Jesus. The commander went with servants and brought them in without force because they were afraid the people might stone them. That might should have been a clue to pay attention to what was going on around them, right? That the people have seen something. There's something about these people that they, they trust, that they believe, that they have witnessed, that they are experiencing. And it is the life that these guys, Peter, James, John, all these other apostles are preaching about. They've experienced this life. It has changed their life. And so they are there and they're turning to Jesus by the thousands And so they find the jail empty. They're going to bring them in and have a trial with them or make a mockery out of them. They go to the jail and they're not there. They're wondering about it. And then somebody says, hey, uh, those guys are back at the temple. And they're teaching. And you can imagine what that must have been like for this this ruling body. In fact, Luke's going to tell us. We don't even really have to imagine it. 
In fact, he's going to use some really strong language to describe kind of what was going on. But they get there and they see that they're teaching and knowing that they will have this crowd turn on them, what does it say? They took them in without force. Now then, something I read earlier this week said, it was real quick to point out that these guys were not resisting. They were not resisting. They went in without, without any problem. And so they went in. Then verse 27. After they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin and the high priest and asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Do we know the answer to this question? The answer is yes. Back in chapter 4, verse 18, that's what they told them. Don't teach in this name. And you notice they don't say Jesus. They say this name, refusing to acknowledge who he is. Refusing to, to give him the, the respect that he deserves. So they say, didn't we tell you, didn't we order you strictly not to teach in this name? Look you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And it's with that line that one of the first expansion prophecies of Jesus is fulfilled. What did Jesus tell them in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? He said, the Holy Spirit is going to come on you and you're going to be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem and Samaria, and he moves out to the ends of the earth. What have these guys just said? You have filled what? You filled Jerusalem. You have filled Jerusalem with the teachings of Jesus. And so they've, they've completed kind of the, the, the first step of their mission. But they say, you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now then, watch verse 29. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to the right hand as as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and for forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of those things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. There's a, a guy by the name of John Stott. He calls that little response of Peter's, he calls it the, the, beautiful, the beautiful antithesis. Because in those words, what you see is honor being given to Jesus when what was meant for Jesus was dishonor. And Peter lays it out right there. He says, God raised Jesus whom you crucified, whom you murdered on a tree that has the idea of a, 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 a hanging. Deuteronomy, you go all the way back you go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 21 and it talks about someone who dies in such a manner and that is the worst possible way for a person to die. Not, not physically, but you want to inflict the most shame and the most dishonor on somebody, 
you hang them up and kill them in such a way. And Peter says, you, you did this to Jesus. You crucified Him. You humiliated Jesus, but God exalted Jesus to His right hand as ruler and Savior. And this is the first time Luke uses the word Savior in Acts right here. He is the Savior. He's going to bring repentance to, to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we're witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey. And it could be construed that that might be almost kind of a shot at these guys. That because you have refused to believe in Jesus, because you refuse to believe in Jesus, you cannot get the Holy Spirit. And it's because you don't have the Holy Spirit that you don't understand these things. You don't have the spiritual antennas and the spiritual ability to recognize what's going on. It's no wonder you're jealous. It's no wonder you're upset about these things because you don't get it, because you've missed it. Because you hung Jesus on a cross and you refuse to acknowledge it. But we, we are witnesses to these things. And so, they're ordered not to teach in the name of Jesus. They've been harassed. They've been threatened. They've been arrested. And Peter's reply is simple. It's, it's powerful. But it's one that's full of civil disobedience. When he says, we must obey God. rather than people. Some versions say men. Some say human authority. But the idea is, no matter who said it, if it is not of God, we're not going to touch it. We're not going to, we're not going to do this. And so that brings us to that question that I posed just a few minutes ago. Is there a time when civil disobedience is a good thing? I think it is. I think there, there is a time when it is and can be a good thing. Now, before you throw me out of here as a heretic, we have to remember that our our nation, the founding of our nation, was set in motion by an act of civil disobedience. Anybody like tea? Glennis, we love your tea. But at the, the, the Boston Tea Party, okay, that was an act of, of civil disobedience, and, and that could be a good thing. There are times when it is appropriate 
When you look back at the, the, the history of our nation and you look at some of the stuff that took place with our history of, of slavery, some of the things that, that took place during the, the, the civil rights movement, you realize that was a time to stand up and say, this is not right. Because if we are going to call ourselves the people of God, then we must recognize, as Kendall astutely pointed out to us, that we are all image bearers of God. And so stuff like that, stuff like racism and injustice and prejudice and oppression has to be stood up against. A party. The South African policy of segregation and discrimination on the, on the grounds of race needed to be stood up against. Because human dignity was robbed from human beings created in the, in the image of God. Uh, you've heard me mention N.T. Wright a number of times. He's a leading uh, New Testament scholar. This is what he says about civil disobedience. He asks a couple of questions here. He says, shall we compromise our allegiance to him, meaning Jesus? Shall we compromise our allegiance to Jesus by going along with human instructions that cut against the gospel? Or shall we remain loyal even at the risk, even at the risk of, of civil disobedience? And I think... I think these are such important questions. What the religious leaders were doing was in direct opposition to the gospel. And when we see things that go directly against the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that is for all humanity, the good news that says, I don't care who you are, I don't care where you come from, I don't care what you've done, you are a child of God and the blood of Jesus covers you no matter what. When we see things that go against that, we must stand up. Even if it means risking civil disobedience for the sake and the good of others. And I think to do this is to practice the gospel. I think it is also to bear the cross of Christ. Because it says your humanity matters more than my preferences. Didn't Jesus call us to that anyway? to put others first, to think of others as, as better than ourselves. Stanford University, they have online their uh, encyclopedia of philosophy. This is, what, uh, this is their definition as defended by, um, let's see if I've got his name, um, defended, um, I can't remember his name. But anyways, it's been defended in public case, public courts. But this is, the, this is that definition 
of what civil disobedience is, according to, to Stanford. Civil disobedience is a public, nonviolent, and conscientious breach of law undertaken with the aim of bringing about a change in laws or, or government policies. Now, there's certain things that have to take place in order for civil obedience to, to, to happen, disobedience to happen. It's, one, it's got to be public. It's got to be public. So people know that, hey, look, what is going on here is not right, and we have to take a stand against it, and this is us doing that. It's got to be conscientious. It needs to be thought out. It needs to be well-reasoned, not something that's just haphazardly done. But it needs to be discerned and thought through and prayed and bathed in prayer and, and, and bathed in, in discernment of God's Word. And it must be nonviolent. And that's a big one. Because I've seen protests that were violent. I've seen protests that, that turned violent. Man, it can be incredibly, incredibly ugly. And so people that, that choose to do this must be willing to accept violence but not return violence. Does that make sense? Turn the other cheek. In other words. I think a, a, a great example, a great example of this is seen in the... Um, the nonviolent lunch counter protests that went on uh, during the 60s. You had college students who would go and, and sit at these lunch counters in protest to Jim Crow laws. And you can pull this up on YouTube and you can watch the videos of that stuff, and it is absolutely despicable to watch people, one, insult. To insult somebody is already a despicable act. You know, to, as soon as you call somebody a name, as soon as I call somebody a name, I've already begun the dehumanizing. I've begun the marginalizing, and I build up like a straw man that I can easily knock down. But you witness that, and it's not just the words. You see people throwing stuff, hitting them, knocking them off, dragging them off stools, dragging them, physically throwing them out of these, these, these diners and restaurants and cafes. And, and, and I am amazed that as you watch some of that stuff, the reaction of the African Americans that, that endured those things. They committed to nonviolence in order to do those things. They went through training where they brought in white friends who supported what they were doing and had to insult and curse and do these things to them and they trained in not reacting. That was a time of civil disobedience that needed to happen 
Because there's been a time in our not-so-recent history where not everybody has been viewed as equal. Maybe equal in the eyes of God, but not always equal in the eyes of man. And if we are going to be the people of God, then we must have the eyes of God. We must always remember that when we look into the eyes of another person, we're looking into a person who bears the image of God, but we're also looking into the eyes of another person that Jesus died for. And when we see things that push against that, we, as a Christ-centered community, must stand up and say, this cannot happen. This, this cannot be. We've seen a lot of uh, stuff going on in the news recently. The aftermath of the shooting, the uh, Parkland community. We've seen student protests and they're asking for, for safer schools. Now, I tried to wrap my head around these things, as I know you have. Tried to think it through, tried to think about what's the response as, as a Christian. And it's, it's not easy, right? Am I, am I the only one that thinks it's not easy? Because I don't think it's easy. And I get the, I think, I think I get the extremes. I think I get the, it's not the gun's fault crowd. I get that. But I think I also get the, well, if somebody, if a, you know, if a child hits somebody with a stick, you take the stick away. I think I get that as well. And, you know, a lot of stuff on social media has been those two arguments. And a lot of those arguments have just devolved into base humanity. Name-calling. Slurs. Now, and I'm talking about Christians on both sides. And that should not be. We should not be devaluing another human being. Especially on social media. Come on. Well, we get tough behind a keyboard, don't we? I'm a lot tougher behind a keyboard. I think I get those arguments. But I also think that the answer is not that simple on either side. It rarely is. I think the answer lies somewhere in the middle where we listen to one another, where we are respectful and we have discussions, not shouting matches that evolve into name calling. I think it involves Humility. Um, there's a guy that, that I know. I, I, don't, I don't know him. I know who he is. I'm, I'm friends with him on Facebook. 
Um, he, he posted something the, uh, the night of that shooting. And it's really, whew, it's two things I want to share with you about this. These are just his Facebook posts. And so I want to explain. I'm going to put them up, and then I'll talk about them a little bit. The first one is this. He says, The Hunger Games describes a world where adults had become so anesthetized from the good and warped by power that they'd become okay watching children kill each other. So, now, while that is a hyperbolic statement, it's certainly exaggerated. I think it does stand as a, a strong metaphor and a critique of maybe the, where, where some things are. I think what he is saying is we cannot get to this point where we just become anesthetized to things. Now, I'm not, I'm not anti-gun. I own guns. I have some that are very special to me. Ones that were given to me from my, by my grandfather. My boys have guns that were purchased by Bethany's dad from the time he had cancer. I'm not anti-gun, but I do think it is time that we need to do more listening. And that requires humility. And that requires... Respectful discussion on, on all parts. And then, you know, something else that we've heard a lot. And, and, and I get it, and you get it, and you know what, what people say when they mean this. And I've said it, and you've said it. But you hear people say the reason why we have stuff happening like this is why? Because God is not allowed in school. Who's heard that statement? All of us. We've made that statement. I've made that statement. And on one hand, yes, God is not allowed in schools. Teachers can't publicly acknowledge Him. You know, there's no praying. There's none of those things going on. But I think we also need to be careful about making such overarching statements. This is Sean Palmer again. He says this, he says, let me say that it is nonsensical, it is heretical and offensive to every faithful, that's the key word there, teacher, student, administrator, and staff member to say that God isn't in schools. Because those of you that teach, God is in your school. While publicly, he may not be allowed there. He is there through your witness. And if you can't talk about it, then you show it. Because God is there. And so when people say that, you can say, yeah, I get it. But He's also there. Because I'm there. And I believe in Him. And he is there. What, 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 did, what did the religious leaders tell Peter and the apostles? 
Don't go to the temple and don't do what? Don't teach in whose name? Jesus. Just as Jesus was not allowed in the temple, He was there through His followers. God is in our schools. In the faithful witness of His people. So as a charge to those of you, those, our, our educators, if you would stand, if you would stand, I would appreciate that. Our educators. If you are an educator in any kind of capacity, please stand. I charge you in the name of Jesus Christ to be God's witness in your schools. And we will support you in that. Amen? God bless you and thank you for what you do. So what does this mean? I think there is a time when civil disobedience is necessary. I think civil disobedience for the sake of civil disobedience is not bad. I think that's anarchy. And that cannot happen. But I think when it means standing up for the human God-given rights of another person. I'm not talking about national rights given to a person. I'm talking about God-bestowed rights. We have to stand up. And so our community connection for this week is simply this. When the gospel is at stake, take a stand. And by gospel, I mean, of course, the good news of Jesus. I mean the good news of Jesus and, and, and the resurrection, but I also mean by gospel things that are an affront to the gospel. Racism, injustice, oppression, discrimination. When those things are allowed to run rampant, they are an affront to the gospel. And as the people of God, we must stand up. We must take a stand when the gospel is at stake. That doesn't mean that's easy. But I think that's what I think that's what Jesus wanted from us. The very first sermon he ever preached, he unrolled the scroll of Isaiah. 61. He was in his hometown of Nazareth. And the passage he read. So the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because He has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, and to proclaim the year in favor of the Lord. That was Jesus' mission. If we call ourselves Christians, that should be our mission as well. If we are going to be a Christ-centered community, 
That must be our mission. When the gospel is at stake, the people of God must take a stand and say, we will obey God rather than man. Let's pray together.